When John wrote his gospel, it was uh, near the end of the first century. Scholars uh, pretty much agree across the board that it was probably written around the year 95 AD. If you uh, do the math on this, you'll realize that there were very few eyewitnesses, if any, uh, still around. Of course, John being the writer. But uh, think about this. If Jesus died around the year 30 AD, and if you add 60 to that span, um, you're talking about a people that were not well known for living at that time the number of years that it would be at the end of the century. You can perhaps imagine, though, for those that did know Jesus, that were still around, there were some tensions probably there uh, between those that really knew Jesus and those who had come after Uh, Sadly enough, the church does this same thing on a regular basis with those that were here early and were a part of a church that has just been formed and has seen it across its span of life. And those that have come just in the last few months, as if there is something better about those that have been around for a long period of time and have known firsthand what was going on and those that are late to the game. John wrote for those, though, who had not seen Jesus face to face. Remember this, John wrote for those who had not seen Jesus face to face. John saw no distinction between these two groups. For it was not the case that he gave credence to the idea that only looking into Jesus' eyes was the way to become a person of faith. It is interesting how he tells this. You remember from last week that Mary there in the garden at the tomb that was empty was weeping when she was interrupted by the presence, of course, of the angels who asked her why she was weeping. But then the one whom she thought was the gardener who engaged her in conversation and said, why are you crying? And then he spoke her name. And in that instant, in speaking her name, she knew that it was Jesus that was there with her. But the scripture goes to say that when she understood that it was Jesus and ran to tell the disciples that she had seen the Lord, very little evidently occurred except that they locked the doors and hid more quietly in those spaces because of their fear. You would think that this might have changed their perspective, but it says here in this passage, when it was evening of that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house were where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them. And it's a good thing that Jesus was able to move through these walls, this door, in order to get to them. When they had encountered Jesus, they wanted to tell others. 
Thomas was not there. And when they began to recount to Thomas what had occurred, they got to feel what Mary felt (laughs) because Thomas was not to be convinced (laughs) just as they were not to be convinced by Mary. The disciples were not convincing Thomas. He said, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hand and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. And this is beauty at its greatest in this gospel. For Jesus comes to Thomas too. And you just heard this story of how, how Jesus reached out and gave him the opportunity to believe once again. But it's interesting here because once he speaks to Thomas and says, put your finger here and see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God, Jesus says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? as if there's something wrong with having seen Jesus. Have you believed because you have seen me? John is emphasizing the power of testimony. Our sharing the word of Jesus. Do you remember he started his telling in the gospel with these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The concept is crucial. As the church is expanding into its second generation, and you and I who are the umpteenth generation of those that have gone before, receive the word without being able to look into the very eyes of Jesus ourselves. How can we find our peace? Jesus said, peace be with you, but how can we find our peace in this community when we have not seen Jesus face to face. Most of you know, especially those that are a part of the membership here at Pittman Park, that we have underway a project that is called Project Kids. It is an emphasis upon children's ministry here in the church. Uh, Our goal is to gather by the end of this year 100 children from the ages of zero to what would be fifth fifth grade. So it would be from the nursery to the fifth grade, 100 children. This is a wild goal. We are not near that goal at this time, but we have affirmed that this is where we want to be and we believe that God is calling us to be. And so we are encouraging as many as possible to take this on as a shared project. 
and ideas are flowing. In fact, there's a group that will be meeting even today just following this service over in the parlor in order to discuss this in greater detail. There is a group of members of this church that have already begun to commit time that they did not know that they had on Sunday mornings in order that we can more adequately guide the changes that are being made in order to achieve the goal that we are called to. And let me ask you today, have you set aside time to be a part of this project, kids? You may be thinking to yourself, well, I serve my time. I've already done what I'm supposed to do. Let somebody else take up the role. Let me ask you, are you comfortable with the idea that there would be even one child with whom you could make such a great difference? Not feeling the great difference because you haven't been involved. We need volunteers in order to guide these children in the way that God wishes them to be guided. And so let me ask you, have you got your memory verses down? Some of you will remember that the children have been memorizing verses. And a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that every month there will be a new memory verse that will be posted at the the crossroads in our educational building at Main Street and you can go by and work on your memory verse. If you don't think you can do it here, take a picture of it with your phone, take it home with you, work on this because I have given every child in this church permission to ask any and every adult if you know the memory verse. So beware, and I've been hit several times already. Now, the first one for our nursery-age crowd is really simple. We've taken, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You you know the beautiful verse there. And we've made it, we've put it in their language. And you know what we have them saying? We have them saying, Jesus is number one. (laughs) Isn't that powerful? As they hold up that one finger, Jesus is number one. And then for those that are a little older, we've got them memorizing Philippians 2, verse 3, but in a language that they can connect with. And I'm going to look at my note here. Don't do anything only to get ahead. Don't do it because you're proud. Instead, be humble. Value others more than you value yourself. Isn't that a great verse? Can you imagine how much it would impact these children who are trying their best to memorize if they never met an adult in this church that wasn't able to say that verse before they got through with it? Can you imagine the impact that it would have on their lives? John Westerhoff wrote a book which he entitled, Will Our Children Have Faith? 
And in that book, he talked about faith development among children and youth. He said that in early childhood, that children seek out an experienced faith. And you know how this goes. You're there at the table before a meal, and someone says, let's have a prayer, and our hands extend to connect. And we have a prayer together, either spoken or sung, particularly if there's a child at the table. Later in the day, it's time for bed. A moment of prayer, perhaps, in which perhaps in your home, you kneel beside the bed and a child puts praying hands together. You remember this, don't you? How incredibly important it is. And do you remember ever seeing a child in your home taking a Bible even before he or she was able to read because they saw you taking a Bible and opening it to read? It's incredible. Experienced faith, so important in early childhood. Westerhoff says that the next level of faith development occurs between childhood and early adolescent. And it's a phase that he calls affiliative faith. And it has to do with belonging to a group, wanting to be a part, where they see others answering the questions for them. This is who we are. This is what we believe. This is what we do. Just being a part of worship is like that, which is why I'm so glad that Sophie is here today and she has passed out at the front nearly now. But it is so important for her to be here so that she can be assimilated and feel a part of what is going on. And by the way, my granddaughter was here just a few moments ago and I'll get to share this message with her a little later today. The third, the third area that Westerhoff says is searching faith. Searching faith. This occurs in late adolescence. And it has to do with asking questions, sometimes very hard questions. And let me tell you, we need to be praying for Jared Simonon every day because he catches a lot of hard questions from our youth who are trying to figure out what they believe. A few years back, one of my favorite songs was by a group called the Indigo Girls, and they sang up on the watershed, staring at the fork in the road. You can stand there and agonize till agony's your heaviest load. Have you ever been there? Where you, you were trying your best to make a decision and yet the agony of it all was trapping you. Youth and adults need the space to deal with that kind of agony. Thomas experienced agonizing doubt, agonizing doubt at whether Jesus was raised from the dead or not. And yet as he stood before Jesus, 
He spoke words that evidenced that he finally had entered that last category, which Westerhoff calls owning faith. Owning faith. Paul Tillich, a renowned theologian from the 20th century, was from Germany. He came, was pretty fully Americanized. He was on faculty at Harvard University. And he spoke words of wisdom when he wrote this. The old faith must die, eaten away by doubts, but only so that a new, deeper faith may be born, may be born. When we moved to our first appointment years ago down in Miller County, a little church out in the country, Cook's Union, a tragic accident had occurred a year before we arrived. Thad Richardson, who I think was about 12 or 13 years old, the son of a farmer in that area, was assisting his father by just sort of watching some irrigation equipment. Um, This was the old irrigation equipment that uh, was sort of like stringing uh, fire department hoses out across fields. And so there was this uh, reel, this large reel that would move at a snail's pace and it would reel in the hose and put it into a place where the farmer could then move it to another location. It was an enormous amount of work. And Thad had been left there to tend the machine and to make sure that everything worked properly and to turn it off if it needed to be. His father wasn't around, no one else was around, but he was walking the spokes of that reel. Can you imagine this? No danger here, no danger here, but his foot slipped through and his leg was caught in that spool and rotated him around, if the spool itself had not served as a tourniquet, he would have bled to death on the spot. But not only did he survive, doctors were able to put his leg back together remarkably. He is two to three inches shorter on that side now. I cannot tell you how devastating it was to the small little youth group that met at that church and even to the adults who felt so for this family that had had to experience this tragic circumstance. That youth group was filled with fear. (laughs) What does this mean? How in danger am I? Will Thad survive? All of these questions. In the midst of those questions, the beautiful spirit of Christ was at work at Cook's Union United Methodist Church to cradle them and to guide them through the questions, to a place of owning faith. By the time we reached Cook's Union, there were 25 to 30 youth 
in that youth group. I'm talking about a congregation of only 90 people that would get together on a Sunday morning. But one third of the congregation were youth who had seen God at work in their lives to bring them to faith. This is why, in my opinion, we should be careful when we use the word doubting Thomas as if it's a put-down of some sort. It is not a put-down. In fact, a little skepticism and doubt is the only way that we will be able to search through to own our faith in a significant way. This is why the church needs to be so attentive to patiently making room for doubting Thomases on any given day that we exist. Because word gets around. If people outside the church think we've got all the answers, they'll think we're not real. But if they think you and I share the questions that they have, you will be amazed at how God becomes very, very present. Perhaps the best known verse of scripture in the Gospel of John is the one that we mentioned just a little bit ago. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But it's the verse that is adjacent to that. John three seventeen, that is so fascinating to me. Because it's in the 17th verse that John gives definition to what he's talking about. Indeed, he says, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus spoke to Thomas. He spoke to the disciples, rather, and said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And this is this beckoning by Jesus to love with this God-given limitless love. And by the way, have you ever asked yourself who Thomas's twin is? It says Didymus there, which means the twin. Thomas had another one of him somewhere else and the Bible never says anything else about who his twin might be. And so let me raise this possibility to you. Might it not be us? Are we not Thomas's twin? Or do you have it all figured out? If you've got it all figured out, maybe you're not Thomas's twin. But if you're still working this through and you can sense God pulling you even now to truly owning your faith, 
Maybe you're a twin. It is no wonder to me at all that among the hearing impaired, the universal sign language for Jesus is this. Have you seen that before? The sign of the finger in the imprint of his hands. Try that with me. One more time. Does that remind you of anybody? In fact, it might remind you of two people, right? Jesus, of course. But do you remember who Jesus said, put your finger here? And so is seeing believing? Or does it have to do with something even deeper? Even deeper than seeing. What do you think? What do you think?